Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. Today, we have the ever-lovely Jack Frangin back on the show. We talk about news, what's happening in our little corner of the blockchain world, and lots of funny banter, so I hope you enjoy. We should uh, start by uh, saying welcome back to Jack. Oh, yeah. You may know him from episodes such as episode one or episode two, the follow-up episode. <laughs> we have Jack back on the podcast. Hey, cool. uh, the, the, the ever-popular with the fans, Jack Francham. Everyone was, everyone was clamoring for me to come back, and finally I, I've listened to the people. What's new in blockchain You're this asking month? me? You're looking at me? Oh, okay. This, so uh, the most important thing in the blockchain community this month was the Zero Knowledge Conference. Oh, yeah. Um, which was a couple of weeks ago now, uh, at time of at time of release, who knows? Uh, I, th- I I personally, as an unbiased observer, think it went great. Honestly, um, uh, I have not been to any other blockchain conferences, so maybe all the other ones are way better. But this one I thought went really well, and uh, we had um, some good roundtables, some good talks. Um, I saw Maciej's roundtable on the uh, formal verification of smart contracts and, and generally increasing the reliability of smart contracts and some really honestly great points came out of that from uh, Solidity developers, uh, which we don't actually have that many of at Parity. Um, so it was interesting to hear some stuff from people who develop on Solidity full-time. Um, I did a workshop on LibP2P, which... Uh, I thought was great and interesting and the best thing at the conference. And I saw Fred's talk on um, sharding, which was also very good, uh, but not as good as mine, obviously. My goodness. <laughs> and I can give a little bit of an update on the sharding stuff later. But I, uh, yeah, I was obviously there as well, although um, my involvement was largely um, looking at talk proposals and saying yeah that sounds interesting or not i don't think that's all that good <laughs> and uh and i was really the the hero that put all of it together and uh, having been at some some other blockchain conferences i actually think this one was really good it was a good crowd um lots of good interesting talks uh, we had a lot of zero knowledge content which you know for the name of this podcast we don't actually have all that much of <laughs> mm. so uh, i think that that's good and hopefully we can get some of these people into uh, the podcast in the future to talk about what they were talking about there. So just a little more background on this, I kind of want to describe a bit more what we're talking about here. Um, we had uh, something called the Zero Knowledge Summit uh, that we put together about a week ago, or a bit more than a week ago in Berlin. It was a really small event. It was 150 people, mostly researchers and devs working in the space. And we brought them together to talk a little bit about the decentralized world and zero knowledge proofs. Um, we didn't do any public marketing, so it was really just through word of mouth. And I think this was really cool because, like, so what we were aiming for with this event was we wanted to take the spirit of the Zero Knowledge podcast, which is very much a podcast focused on, like, it's us learning and kind of bringing you along with us as we're learning about all these new things. And that was what we were trying to do with this with this summit. And I think it worked out, like, really, really well. Uh, I was I was, like, weirdly happy with the turnout and the quality of the audience 
one of the things that we were we did a little bit differently was like I think normal conferences they tend to highlight just these top level speakers and it's like oh come to see these like cool people but we actually were really careful to make sure that not just the speakers but also the audience was kind of a group of pretty special people and yeah I would say like it was super cool that we finally got to really kind of scratch the surface of the zero knowledge proofs and the education around that um as you said frederick we haven't done that much yet in this podcast on that topic this is a really good way to start we had Z, like strad from zcash we had um yeah uh, jacob eberhardt from socrates nicola greco from um filecoin who's doing the zk implementation there and we also had howard Wu from blockchain of berkeley who actually helped me put together that that sort of block on zero knowledge proofs, which was awesome. Um, yeah, and then we had all of our friends from these different teams, from Cosmos, Ocean, Neufund, Gnosis, Colony, Epicenter. I'm for sure going to miss some people here. I'm sorry, but it was really cool to see all of you. Uh, and there was a bunch of parody people as well. And there was actually a bunch of parody workshops. Um, we had, like, the, the reason this was able to kind of come together was we had two really fantastic sponsors. One was Parity, uh, and obviously we were super happy to have them be also really present there. And uh, also uh, 1KX, which is a token angel fund. They were incredibly supportive and awesome at this event. So, yeah, I wanted to say sort of a thank you to those two groups and maybe just a big thank you to everyone who came out. We will very likely be doing this again. And uh, yeah, I hope to see even more of you there next time. And we've recorded some of the talks as well. And uh, we'll, we'll link to the YouTube channel and the show notes. Uh, I think there's some really good stuff there to, to dig into even after the fact. Totally. And just sort of on that tip, there are some other like pretty interesting events coming up that we're paying attention to. So one is Event Horizon happening in Berlin, I think, next week. And then there's also EdCon uh, later on. I think that's uh, beginning of May in Toronto, my home country, but not my home city. <laughs> Are you going there? I might. Yeah, it's it's a. I'm thinking about it. Good excuse to go home to Toronto. I'm your not old from haunt. Toronto. <laughs> You're from Canada, that means I'm from Toronto. Yeah, but it's a different thing. Anyway, um, <laughs> all right. Yeah. Speaking of conferences, we also, um, or I, I recently got a video of my talk that I gave it at CC, um, and it was uploaded to YouTube by the organizers. There were some technical difficulties making it very delayed, but uh, it's finally up, and I'm talking about uh, Rust smart, smart contracts running on uh, WebAssembly, um, which is now live on Coven. You can go try it out. I think maybe it's good to dig into here again a little bit. I know we've done it before, but like what WebAssembly is and what this means, because it's something that I'm really interested in. I like I'm a language geek, and I, I like thinking about you know what programming languages we can build and and how Rust interplays with this. But maybe uh, Jack, you want to give a, a, an intro on what Web, WebAssembly is first? Sure. Yeah, um, WebAssembly is something so, uh, that I'm certainly very interested in as well. Uh, so WebAssembly is a virtual machine bytecode. Uh, when you run a language on your computer, for example, Solidity, or for for example, Java, or C, or Rust, the language itself, like the, the, the text that you write, is not what's actually running on the machine. Um, it gets compiled to like a lower level format, which is normally like um, interpreted by the computer. WASM is just another one for all intents and purposes. It, it's It's not really very special 
but what it does have is the backing of major players uh, like Google, like Mozilla, because they want to use it as a compilation target for the web to replace JavaScript. And so as a result, you've got great tooling for, for example, LLVM, uh, a popular compilation uh, library, compiles to WASM. So you can compile C and C++ and Rust to, to WASM. You can compile uh, many other languages. I'm, I'm, I can't say any any other ones for sure off the top of my head. There's a couple of good ones, yeah. I mean, uh, if you're a JavaScript fan, you can't compile JavaScript, but you can compile TypeScript into uh, WebAssembly. There's also AssemblyScript, which is similar to TypeScript, but sort of more uh, uh, closer to WASM so that you can get higher performance code out of it. Um, and WASM on Ethereum is basically an attempt to replace the EVM or at least supplement the EVM with something that can be interpreted a lot faster. So, for example, like the um, the EVM has lots of performance pitfalls right now, and uh, WASM could be a way to make smart contracts run much faster. It also allows you to write contracts in essentially any language and and piggyback off tooling uh, that, that would put other languages on the blockchain. So, for example, if you want to make a new language for Ethereum right now, you essentially have to make a new language from scratch because the EVM has so many quirks that you have to take into account and expose to the programmer. Uh, whereas WASM basically uh, works, like the language would work exactly how it would work on uh, not running on Ethereum. And you can sort of piggyback off the, the um, experience of our developers on existing languages. And if you want to make a new language, you can you don't have to tie it to Ethereum. You can put it on something else. So, uh, so you... Basically, we don't have to be this silo anymore. I think there are some good arguments both for and against like general general purpose programming languages for blockchain. Like you said, there are some performance benefits that are just like plain. Um, the EVM has 256-bit words and WebAssembly has 32-bit words. So you can, or like, it's just easier to do math. <laughs> Uh, basically you can like write cryptography that is just natively like high performance. You don't have to have pre-compiles necessarily though. Pre-compiles, you'll still need them and you'll still need them for quite a lot of things, but, uh, not as much, um, for just regular average business logic. I don't think the performance case is as clear, but then you have the other benefits of, yeah, we are not siloed anymore. We can use whatever language we want, but like you said, like there's some benefit to designing a language that's purpose built for the blockchain environment. Uh, but there's also like other things that we want to be able to take, take from the rest of the programming world that we've already built. So like there's some trade off there for sure, but I, I, I'm really excited about this and like being able to start experimenting with this. Like the, the main thing is we don't know the answer to a lot of these questions. We are making assumptions here about this would be good. These tools are useful, whatever. But uh, being able to now like have it live on a test net and test it out would be is is cool. I don't know if you already mentioned this, Frederick, but if anyone would like to actually see that talk, we did recently tweet it. I think you're going to add it uh, maybe in the show. I notes can add as well. it to the show notes. Yeah. So you were on Frederick. You were on sort of a whirlwind trip all over the all over the place. You've been like, did you go around the world or did you just go like Asia back? I went to Asia back. <laughs> it would be a weird trip to go around the world. 
But um, yeah, so it's been a lot of like March has been a conference month um, for better or worse. I haven't gotten much work done, but it was fun. And I was in Taiwan for this workshop with a bunch of client implementers and the Ethereum Foundation to talk about sharding. Sharding is the thing that's happening. And um, at a high level, I think it's uh, the, the sharding FAQ is actually a really good document that everyone should read. It's kept up to date. I read it a couple of months ago and came back to it now and just like totally different. So uh, it's it's definitely worth a read every once in a while. But essentially sharding is you imagine you want to scale Ethereum. How do you do it? One way is to make blocks bigger and just, you know, require bigger servers that run the existing chain. Um, the other option is to start off a start up a bunch of side chains and, and do some stuff there and then report back to the main chain somehow through bridges or something. But in the bridged model, you're actually splitting your security pool across all of these different chains that you start up. So the more scaling you have, the less security you have. And that's not a trade-off we want to make. So how do we get scaling without trading off security? And uh, this is what the sort of sharding proposal that's being thrown around is about. And uh, in spec one or in in phase one, the spec says that, you know, we just propose transactions that are random data and then work out uh, the infrastructure to start collating these proposals for transactions and, and managing them through a smart contract on the main chain. Uh, but essentially, the goal is to have 100 shards running. The shards will probably run WebAssembly uh, VM and... Uh, uh, you know, built the spec phase one is like within a couple months, within six six months, maybe, I don't know. Um, there's uh, several teams working on it and stuff is happening. Uh, but then like the full implementation is still years away um, b- before it's being shipped and like generally useful. Like it'll be useful before then to some degree, but not um, like there's several stages of sharding where you can shard out like token transfers where you can shard at uh, contracts that just operate within a shard. And then like the final piece of the puzzle is cross shard communication. Uh, And that's probably years away. I think it's worth noting that although phase one is quite soon, phase one will not actually have any uh, benefits to the, to the end user immediately. It's just a test. It's it's literally useless. It's, it's designed to be useless. (laughs) In general, like when, when they're gonna, when this is gonna be deployed, will this be done? Is it just testnet? Like, would you just do this on a testnet, or would you do this in a totally different environment? Or where, where is that happening? Phase one, they're they're talking about doing it on on the testnets, um, and then you know you could actually deploy it to the mainnet just to make sure that the economic incentives are are working correctly, but. Um, Phase one has no purpose on mainnet, so it probably won't be. Like, there's no econ- economic incentive part of it at all. So uh, once the economic incentive parts start playing a role, I think you want to test it on the testnet, and then eventually you have to run it on the mainnet to, to try out those game-theoretic aspects. Now that's sort of like... So we we've, were talking a bit about this before, but that leads us to another point we wanted to cover in this episode, which is just sort of a little bit of a conversation about testnets. What we're seeing is that there's some projects that are just sort of skipping the testnet phase. And I think there's um, maybe it's something worth just thinking about. I think 
it's a uh, an interesting choice like it, it seems it seems almost obvious for coming from the ethereum world to have a test net because pretty much everything that we do uh we test on uh covan for parity and um i can't remember what the other ones are called uh because i didn't work on them um but like robston and rinkeby okay thank you it, it seems so obvious to have a test net but for a new project starting up from scratch uh, like uh if the point of a test net is to not have value uh it's much easier for a project to just declare buyable where if you lose money of value then you shouldn't have jumped on to the the the, the train early hmm. um and you know it's it, it, it's 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 more development effort i mean Co- covan works very differently to uh the main net uh, as far as like the actual consensus w- uh, goes and not only that but um not not only that but like you need to have some method of, of minting coins just just uh to prevent the coins from getting value i mean the bitcoin testnet got value and then they had to clear it with a hard fork i believe that happened a while ago people started selling the test coins for real money hmm. <laughs> yeah i think uh that's a, that goes to the point of like what's the point of your testnet or or your mainnet like i i think i feel just intuitively that it's incredibly irresponsible to start something without having run a testnet but um and and like for almost everything you should have a testnet like even if you're so the one thing you can't test on a testnet is something that requires you know an economy to like if you're testing economic incentives you have to have a value bearing token to test those theories because otherwise like you're not actually testing anything um on a testnet you can actually have some strategies to like oh if you break this um we'll give you a bug bounty reward or something and there's there's some economic incentive to try to work out uh different behaviors but it's not it's not ever going to be as rigorous as if you're testing something with a value bearing token so if you want to test a proof of stake system for instance it's it's like probably impossible without a proper mainnet like value bearing token but that said like you should still have a testnet <laughs> you should still be like if and for any like core infrastructure pieces a testnet you know tests your networking it tests your hashing algorithms it tests everything um and like you need to have all of that kind of at least at some basic level of working before you yeah. launch something valuable and it seems super weird given like how how the whole thing is always it's always immutable it's always like unfixable unchangeable once it's deployed on mainnet how could you not want to check that like just some of the basic mechanisms unless and this is sort of a question i have is um when it comes to testnets like do we assume that those projects that have deployed onto mainnet immediately didn't have private testnets that we maybe just like don't know about or would that just not matter yeah i mean it could have happened but yeah the question is there again is like you can test a lot of things in a private testnet but it's all a little bit of like a marketing thing as well right like if you're actually marketing your value bearing network as a testnet you know like you can have a value bearing testnet it's just that the expectations of people going into that are very different from if you market it as this is the mainnet this will always exist but i mean if you like you're saying the the blockchain history is immutable so if you 
launch like a value bearing mainnet testnet thing and have to hard fork to reset and rejigger things then it is just a testnet <laughs> and it's like but what's the difference between a a, a mainnet that you would fork in order to fix problems like uh, ethereum has done on the mainnet um because you know we're still feeling this out is there any is there anything inherently wrong about using the mainnet and then when something goes wrong having a community focused hard fork that would fix whatever the problem was uh, I, sh- I should say that I'm not necessarily in favor of not having a testnet, but uh, I- I'm-, I'm playing devil's advocate here. Yeah, no, I- and I think that's a fair point. I'm totally like in favor of that, actually, that it's all about expectation management and kind of marketing, quote unquote, marketing expectation management, really. If people expect that it this is something that's under development and we may hard fork to fix issues, then that's totally fine. People like should expect that going into it and they know what they're getting themselves into uh with ethereum i think it's pretty clear that like this is still a thing that's under development it's not the most mature technology ever um and we need to sometimes fix things that go wrong uh that's fine um but if you're like if bitcoin started you know hard forking left and right i think it'd be a bit of a different story So it's really just about expectation management, in my opinion. But even with that, like, I mean, we've seen, I mean, sometimes those hard forks are required. Yes, it's a nascent technology. I actually don't know that it's been super well communicated, because if you look at the purists that are emerging in every, well, not every ecosystem, but more the more developed ecosystems, you see, like, they are absolutely, absolutely against a lot of those sort of necessary hard forks and so i wonder if it's just been like bad communication i I think so yeah i don't think that the i don't think the people on the ethereum network do see it as a in development uh um, network a lot a lot of people i mean it's certainly easy for us who are developing it to see it as in development but uh, i mean it, it it has a lot of money riding on it it is the it has the highest dollar volume of transactions um, per second of any network, uh, and I think that a lot of people have a lot of trust in in, in Ethereum. And it's not seen as like a, a basically a glorified testnet. Mm. I mean, that's why we have a testnet. It's just it's interesting. It's it's. I think it's maybe something that wasn't completely understood when when it went live. Or I mean, I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't involved back then. But. I mean, the goal certainly is not to have it be a testnet. Like mm. things that <laughs> of get deployed are obviously extremely carefully <laughs> planned and tested in advance on test nets and everything and there's um you know i i would be comfortable calling ethereum a mainnet not a value bearing test net uh but it's all like it's all degrees it's all you know a sliding scale of like nothing is ever completely solid so like where where do you land on this scale from like this can break at any moment to this will work forever perfectly and uh, having something on the high end of that like ethereum mainnet then having things like in the middle of that which is the test nets and then having things on the very low end which is like your own experimental code that you run in a private network on your machine um, i think having things along the whole spectrum is super important do you think that for a new project, though, one that doesn't have much value riding on it, uh, that starting a mainnet with no testnet is is a completely feasible path to take? 
Like I think what well Frederick sort of said that a little bit where it's like if the whole purpose of it is this economy like if it, if you need to have real users with real stake to do any sort of testing then you would have to do mainnet whereas if it's like if it's not if it's a really complicated it almost sounds like like if it was a like a complicated development if it was a complicated blockchain it would need other kinds of testing happen then you would never want to start mainnet is that fair yeah yeah but the mainnet, I mean, a mainnet of a new project is never going to have much value riding on it anyway. Um, and I don't know. With well, it depends on how you define much. Yeah, and True. With oh, yeah, the that's ICO a good point stuff, with ICOs. Like yeah, that's a very Speculating before there is even a thing, so it's very true. I mean, it would be easy for me to declare buyer-beware on these new projects, um, ones that especially do not have test nets to test new ideas on. And that just like take the ICO money and have that as to bootstrap the value of the network. It's it's easy to just say, well, if you fund that, then that's your own fault. But that's I mean, a lot of people are getting sucked into this, especially nowadays. And maybe it would be more responsible to have something that is explicitly testing, uh, just so that the, the 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 value that people have put into these ICOs is not completely wasted to hacks or bugs. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's just a, it's the natural progression along that scale. Like you start it developing something, you launch a public testnet, try like invite other people like here, here's the thing, try to break it. And if there's like if they ha- if a team has made an ICO and have a lot of money, um, like there's a lot of public interest in that as well. There's a community around that thing because they have investors uh, and the community is probably wanting to like take a look at it and try to break it <laughs> to see if um, it's actually sound. Uh, and so, like, to me, it's just a natural progression to go, like, developing, you launch a testnet, you launch a mainnet, and then you have this scale of, like, security, and you try to move everything more and more upwards. Like, even in Ethereum now, we are trying to launch things always such that the testnet will never break. Like that's that's like the goal is to not have a testnet that's breaking, um, but we're still like a little bit more experimental than we would be on mainnet. I think that treating a mainnet like a value-bearing testnet and avoiding a testnet entirely also sort of encourages a view of of, of forking for any reason, which decreases the trust in the network. Hmm. People seem to trust Bitcoin a lot more than Ethereum solely because of its well. For a yeah. large part, because of its lack of hard forks, um, and the, the hard forks that do exist are sort of strictly secondary to to the Bitcoin proper. Bitcoin Although that's core. that's now. I mean, I don't know what it was like at the beginning. Was Bitcoin not forking more often earlier? Uh, I mean, certainly it has had forks. Yeah, um, but I think that if if you, the, the the more you are forking, the less trust there will be in your project. So maybe having a test net allows you to iterate faster without having to fork uh, your main net yeah i think that's a, a an accurate description like for better or worse like i think that's pretty accurate there's just so many problems with trying to think of like a value bearing test net um like governance is one thing of like just how do you actually organize this and and yeah make stuff still happen like we're seeing with bitcoin and ethereum and everything like the larger it grows the more hard it is to introduce any change, like even like super necessary wanted feature improvements are actually pretty hard to push through. I wonder if there could be some sort of like hybrid testnet mainnet thing happen where like you'd create your testnet, you would try stuff out, 
if you found sort of this like nice middle ground, you wouldn't necessarily deploy it to mainnet, but deploy it into something else. Like just, yeah. And, and maybe your whole community goes with you on that thing. Or I don't know, maybe there would be like creative ways to like do, to still reward people for like taking it serious enough without it fully being on the mainnet. I think that can be a thing. If you're like explicitly saying this is a, test net it's value bearing but it is a test net expect things to break expect to lose all your money mm-hmm. you'll still have people buy into it not with like 80 billion dollars which is good <laughs> that they won't <laughs> but it's still like they'll there will be some money and it will be a playground for actually testing out economic ideas and then you just take ideas from that and, and transplant it into other blockchains I mean, we're certainly trying out ideas on Covan that are not strictly for just Ethereum. For example, the WASM contracts yeah. uh, has uses outside of Ethereum. Um, the POA and uh, yeah, the POA algorithm we're using has uses outside of Ethereum. It's it's yep. uh, it's a test net for blockchains in general, rather than just the, a test net for Ethereum. Now, speaking of sort of proposals and hard forks, there was one proposal this week that was pretty interesting. Um, it was. EIP 958. And this was coming from an Ethereum core dev called Piper Miriam. And it was about actually proposing ASIC resistance. It should be said that our, our, our algorithm is already ASIC resistance, ASIC resistant for some uh, definition of that term. Like it, it's, it's harder to massively parallelize than, than the uh, hashing algorithm used for Bitcoin, for example. Um, but this would improve the resistance to ASICs. And this is all kind of spawned by Bitmain claiming to have built an ASIC for Ethereum. It's like this machine that has 73 gigs of uh, super high fast RAM. And yeah, I don't know, um, can be used to, to mine Ethereum very efficiently. And I mean, but it's not really like it's spawned by this maybe, but it's not really a new discussion. It's something that's been on the table for a long time of like, how do we like, like Jack is saying, the algorithm is ASIC resistant, but it's not ASIC proof. Like nothing is ASIC proof. So the the question is, or has always been like, okay, when will ASICs come and, and what do we do about it? And, um, what would resistance actually look like? Like, what what would what are the techniques that they that they're even proposing there? I don't actually know what this one in particular is, but I mean, ASIC resistance in general. I mean, and if you look at what the ETHash, what it is now, is just um, you create this DAG um, in memory in the GPU memory, or like just in memory in general, and then you do random access lookups and hashing like bits of pieces of that to create some final hash uh, so it's essentially just like very memory heavy it requires a lot of memory and a lot of memory bandwidth to do efficiently and and that's something that's been known to be very hard for ASICs to do so that's just why it was chosen but now like like I was saying this thing proposing I don't know has 73 gigs of memory where a normal graphics card has eight or something so they've basically just taken a bunch of gpus made it into one machine and i don't know somehow this economy seems to work for them i don't know um it's hard to say without actual like digging deeper into details the point of asic resistance is not necessarily to make it impossible for asics to calculate um the the, the hashing algorithm it's to make it so that asics cannot uh calculate 
the hashing algorithm faster in any meaningful way than a um, consumer-grade computer with similar spe- specifications. So, like, it, yeah. it, it, it makes it so that the the best thing to do to calculate the hashing algorithm is to just have lots of consumer computers over having some specialized computer that can do it 10 or 20 times faster. So basically you try to find some pattern that you know is hard for ASIC manufacturers to do in a very specialized way uh, and then build an algorithm out of that. (laughs) And this obviously requires a lot of knowledge of ASICs and specialization and what you can and cannot do on a general purpose CPU and, you know, uh, yeah. But but when it comes to like ASIC resistance as proposed, like if you are actually proposing hard forking to have ASIC resistance, you're not really trying, like you could try to make your algorithm more resistant, but you could also just say, you know, instead of taking the SHA-256 hash, we take the SHA-3 hash and now everyone else has to build new ASICs. So like you're pushing the, problem down the road a little bit without like mean creating a meaningfully harder algorithm to do it's just they have to make a different one now but then again isn't the argument here that if you can push it down the road enough proof of stake comes in and fixes everything this is the argument of a lot of eips like a lot of people just say (laughs) well we don't really need this because proof of stake is coming um but you know proof of stake has been coming for some time and maybe since people are using Ethereum now, we should fix the problems that we have now. And then when proof of stake comes, we can remove those fixes. Um, but there's also some arguments even against, like, what are the arguments like fully against ASIC resistance? It's hard to like be against ASIC resistance per se, but everything around it that's required. So, I mean, it's all switching the proof of work algorithm is obviously a lot of work for developers. Um, there's a huge burden on the governance system to try to like come to some conclusion on what the algorithm is and how to implement it and when like which hard fork do we implement it in um, all of this stuff um, that's already hard like becomes doubly hard because we now have to like think about switching this thing all the time uh, and turns into this sort of cat and mouse game of like you know, we we change it this time, and then two years down the road, someone has built an ASIC for that one, so we change it again, and I don't know. It, it can be kind of hard to just keep up with that. But also, uh, if you start going down this road of changing the algorithm without making the algorithm itself more ASIC-resistant, it's not impossible to just create an ASIC that can be auto-updated. Yeah, I mean, you, you could um, kind of... It depends on how much you change. If you just make a stupid change, like changing an integer somewhere, you can actually kind of build that into an ASIC as well, that you just choose which gate path to go depending on which update you're on. If it's done predictably, which, I mean, doing it that predictably would just be dumb. So I I don't think anyone actually proposes to to do it that way. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough discussion i think i would probably say it's not worth it especially like casper is actually run on some test nets and hopefully we have a a casper ffg fork this year and then you know the plan to go from there to full proof of stake is actually somewhat clear and so it's not like we're in this world where oh proof of stake maybe someday we're not working on it right now though we are actually working on it right now so yeah 
I don't know. I, it's, to me, it doesn't seem worth it. I, I also agree that I don't think it's um, there's much uh, that you could do to meaningfully improve the ASIC resistance without um, causing more downsides than you'd have upsides. Um, sorry, FFG, could you uh, define FFG? Friendly uh, Finality Gadget. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> the thing that will create checkpoints every hundred blocks. Uh, and this is like a, the hybrid. Um, yeah. For sake, hybrid. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, I do know about that. I think the main crux of this EIP is sort of the final note that he makes is um, how do we implement improved ASIC resistance? This is the primary issue that I think needs to be addressed after which we can have an informed discussion about whether we should actually do it. I could not agree with that more. You know, if it's a relatively easy implementation that imp- improves ASIC resistance in a meaningful way, like it'll push it back, you know, five, 10 years, then sure, why not do it? Um, then we're not really playing this cat and mouse game that everyone is afraid of. But if, you know, if there's no proposal for, for such a method, then, you know, we, we don't really know what we're talking about. Was that quote from Piper Miriam? Yeah, from the, from the IP itself. Cool. So, guys, do we have anything else that we want to talk about? Nothing off the top of my head. Not really. There was some sort of April Fool's something, something. There were a couple Just of w- WTF tokens. <laughs> um, there were so many April Fool's things, actually. I don't know. They were kind of... Yeah, I, I, I rarely find them amusing. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm getting too old. <laughs> I think they're confusing for a lot of people. <laughs> I think it's... On, Honestly, the the blockchain space is so crazy at this point yeah. that I would never be able to work out the difference between a April Fool's joke and just a ridiculous project. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's spot on. That's so true. I mean, so Vitalik proposed a limit on the amount of F that would ever be produced and then later said that he would actually implement that if that's what the community wanted. Like, it's, 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 it's impossible to make a joke in this space. It was a meta joke was it what's what's the joke what's the punchline you know it's not a joke i just don't have a sense crypto of crypto kitties just raised 12 million from traditional vcs do you know that are you sure that's not a joke that's not a joke oh my god that's real <laughs> um, that's I'm actually it's a this is a sort of a side note but there, i i actually have now heard uh the argument for why that is a smart idea um like why it's a smart investment from yeah. from the investors? Because well, I mean, I imagine that they would branch off into other projects and collectibles and making sort of accessible stuff, fun things. Yeah. But still, like on its face, uh, like on the surface, it's a pretty like shocking. I mean, clearly the developers have some amount of talent if they created a project with that amount of pull. So maybe if they had more projects to come in the future, it would be a good thing to fund. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say like what the what the deal is, and without knowing what the plans are, if it's just to, for CryptoKitties itself, like merch, uh, it seems weird. <laughs> but like you're saying, the developers are talented. They, like, surely any talented team of developers in this space should be able to raise that amount of money. Mm. Uh, so it's um, you know depends on what it's for. Well, time will tell. But of course, that's the nuanced answer when the answer that I really should be giving is, well, time to leave the crypto space and become a potato farmer. <laughs> that's your threat. That's my threat, yeah. If, potato if, farmer. If, really? If, if, potato? If the, if the blockchain you? community doesn't get its shit together in the next year, I'm going to become a potato farmer. So watch it, guys. Yeah. I'm going to become either a baker or a beer brewer. I'm going deep into VR. 
You'll I mean, never I, see me again. Both of those require <laughs> yeast. You could do both. You don't need to do. You don't need to choose one. True. That's true. One kind of last update I want to share is um, so this is a bit about the zero knowledge podcast. So so far, Frederick and I have been sort of doing this as a little bit of a part time gig. Um, I am going to be taking a bit more of a focused approach to zero knowledge podcast and the events that we're doing around it, um, looking to build out the community and expanding a bit on this idea. So yeah, this is kind of exciting news, I think, for this podcast. And uh, if you are out there and want to get involved or want to reach out, want to start collaborating a little bit more with us, um, it would be awesome to hear from you. We have an email address. We have a Twitter account. <laughs> the email is hello at uh, FM. We actually have two Twitter accounts because I made one without the other guy's knowledge. <laughs> which one's which? Who knows? There's one, twi- there's one Twitter account we're using. Let, let's see who finds which account and which one will get more followers. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll race you. I'll race you to the top. <laughs> Can you compete with cat picks? Because I've got hundreds of cat picks. <laughs> Can we just say it was lovely to have you on the podcast again? Oh, it was lovely to be on. Thanks. Nice we, to see you. Nice to talk to you guys it. again. It's been a long time since I've seen you, Fred. Oh, no, I saw you, yeah. the, I saw you at the summit. That was only a couple of weeks ago. Well, yeah, it's, it's, uh, that was highly in passing. It's uh, been a lot of traveling around. I haven't been in Berlin enough uh, past couple of months. Been traveling elsewhere instead. Honestly, me also. Went to Brazil, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Going to Amsterdam this weekend. And on that note, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.